Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. I've been asked uh, several times, when is it that Satan actually tempted Eve, tempted Adam? And that's an interesting question. Uh, there's timeline keys within Genesis in the creation account, uh, but on that particular issue, there's not a whole lot. And so I believe in a young earth, we can agree to disagree and we can do it agreeably, I hope, I pray, <laughs> right? We're not going to break fellowship over that. Uh, at the same time, I think when we talk about the inerrant, infallible word of God, there are certain things that we've got to look at and be consistent in when it comes to the creation account and how we handle uh, that account, how we look at Genesis and take from it a literal, grammatical, contextual, historical view of Scripture. I don't think we, we, we can look at Scripture and take certain pieces of it and say, oh, we, we agree with this, and then take other pieces of Scripture and say, well, we don't really quite get it, so we're going to read into it, or we're going to do it, uh, we're going to change it to fit what we think, what we believe in some way. Anyway, we've talked through that. I believe at the completion of creation, there's a day of rest. Amen? All right, we get to the seventh day, and the Lord looks at everything that he's created, day six, Adam and Eve have been created in his image, and he rests on day seven. And what did he pronounce it to be? So-so. That's okay. Adam, nah. <laughs> no, he says it's very good. He doesn't just call it good, he calls it very good. So I think at some point after day seven, because the very good is including all the angels and everything like that, Satan in his own heart, deceived himself, made a decision, was thrown from heaven, thrown to the earth. And very shortly after day seven, we find him taking the form of a serpent, entering into a serpent of some kind, and tempting Eve. Now, I say that, too, because uh, at the very beginning, when the Lord pronounced it very good, creation, he had already told Adam to fill the earth, multiply, rule over the earth. So there's a point there where they had not yet, Adam and Eve, had not yet conceived. And I think that's why we don't know exactly, we don't know if it was day eight, but sometime very shortly after day seven, we find these things taking place. We have the completion and creation, the day of rest, we have Satan's fall cast down to the earth. We have the temptation of Eve and then Adam and then the decision of Adam and the subsequent consequence. Look, in spite of the sinfulness of sin, grace triumphs. Grace triumphs. And I think there's a beautiful truth in what we just sang and the reality of our salvation, the reality of God's love for us. And we're going to look at this that in spite of the tragedy of sin, there's the triumph of grace. And what a beautiful expression of love that God gives to us, even in spite of the fact that we were still yet sinners. There's a quote from the book, um, Angels of Death. Do you all like history? I love history. I enjoy looking at history, and, and I particularly enjoy the Civil War. I've read all kinds of stuff on that. I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I just enjoy it. And there's one particular book called Angels of Death. It was about the battle 
of Gettysburg, and there was an interesting statement in that. I saw the movie. <laughs> Normally, I read the book first and then uh, see the movie, but this one kind of reversed itself. But there's a quote in there, and, and it's an interesting one, and I've never forgotten it because it hit me when I saw the, the film on this. What a piece of work is man, right? In action, how like an angel. And the old man grinning and scratched his head and then said stiffly, well, boy, if he's an angel, he's sure a murdering angel. Right? In the midst of all the carnage and the death and the, the battle that was about to take place and all the things that were going on in the Civil War, there's an interesting moment there because there's a divine spark in man. Right? At the fall, we're created in the image of God and, and at the image of God has been marred. Not totally lost, but marred. And so now, even though there's a divine spark, there is sin that has entered into this world in a way that has literally been destructive to everything we know, creation included. Genesis chapter 3 is one of the most tragic and sad chapters in the Word of God. There's no question about that. You can't, you can't read Genesis 3, I don't believe, without understanding the significance, feeling the pain, recognizing that this moment, the entire history of mankind has, in effect, been altered. That which God intended for good and that which God declared as very good now has been marred. It didn't catch God by surprise. He knew that this was going to happen. He had a plan already in place for it. And at the same time, we looked at last week, God has a permissive will. He has a directive will. This was not his intention. This was something he allowed. But in the end, he has the victory. In spite of the tragedy of sin, there's the triumph of grace. Disorder, chaos, pain, suffering, tragedy, death, destruction, loss, pain of every description and evil unimaginable is now a part of the human story. And yet again, in the face of the greatest tragedy is the greatest victory. So let's look at this. Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to walk through these things, and this is very basic, folks, but I want to tell you something. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are essential to the rest of the study of the Word of God. And that's why we're calling this the beginnings, because we see the beginnings of these things. We see the beginning of creation. We see the fall, right? We see Abraham, and, and we have these different beginning moments. So those of you who are worried that we're in week six of going through the Bible and we're only in Genesis 3, hang in there. It's all good. Even my wife was alarmed by it. She said, Eric, I think you need to explain to everybody how we're going to do this, right? <laughs> I said, no, I want them to sweat it out, you know. <laughs> oh, mercy. We're going to get there, folks. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> Genesis 3, 1 and following. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, and again, this is something we looked at in the first week, but it is instrumental to understanding the wicked heart of Satan. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. There's really two things in here that, that Satan implies. First of all, he, he questions, did God really say something? That at its face is, is what we struggle with all the time. 
We struggle with it every day. Did the Lord really say this? Is this really how I should walk? Did he really not want me to go this way? Or does he really want me to go this way? We're always in a truth battle, folks. And that's why we need the word of God, because the word of God renews our minds. We begin to recognize what God is really saying versus what our flesh will lie to us about, what the system of this world and the demonic forces are constantly trying to distract us from. Did God really say? The other thing that he puts in here is this question. He, he twists what God said. You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Well, the Lord had said, eat from any tree you want, except the one in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he twists things. Folks, there's nothing new under the sun. Satan's always doing this. He's always twisting what God has said. He's always taking truth and making it malicious. He's always taking a truth and adding to it or taking away from it in order to deceive. Because Satan, as we looked at last week, is the father of lies. Well, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. She got that right. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And she got that partially right. Now, there's a lot that's been made of this. I love chocolate. If I'm on a diet and I touch chocolate, <laughs> it's not a very hard next step. You know, I don't take chocolate in order to smell it. I pick chocolate up because there's a place that God created where all the explosions of taste takes place. I want to eat it. And some people think, well, maybe Eve, in trying to do good, added this don't touch it moment because she knew that if she touched it, she'd be one step closer to eating it. I don't know. One day we'll be able to ask her, what was going through your mind, Eve? What? Help us. <laughs> Jonathan and I, what the What? That was between Jonathan and I. So, you know. But she adds to it, folks. That's without say. Not only do we need to be careful about twisting Scripture, taking away from Scripture, looking at Scripture and then making it what we want it to be, we need to be careful about adding to it. We need to just take the Word of God for what the Word of God is. And receive it. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now this is obviously a direct contradiction to God's word. You surely will not die. It's really interesting to me. I don't know. I've never thought of it in this way. But why is Satan able to say so absolutely a falsehood? In other words, he's taking something that is, in effect, a bit of truth. When Eve took the fruit and she ate of it, she didn't drop over dead. She didn't cease from existence, did she? Physically, she's still there. We know that the Lord is talking about spiritual death with physical death to come. We understand that. I believe Satan did too. Because what had Satan already done? Satan had already sinned. What happened? He was 
separated from the presence of God. But physically, he's still around. And so I think he's able to take this truth that he had actually experienced himself and twist it in a way in order to tempt, in order to deceive. Clearly, spiritual death here is the primary death, and we all know the rest of the story. Physical death follows. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Eve remains. She continues to listen to what he has said, Satan has said, and that's not good. Do you realize the Bible tells us to flee, flee? One word at that moment, I believe, of a call or a cry for help. Things would be altered. Her senses are appealed to. She makes a decision contrary to God's commands. She sins. Immediately she takes the fruit to Adam, and Adam now makes a conscious decision to listen to the voice of his wife, Eve, instead of the voice of God, and he sins. He misses the mark. He disobeys. In rebellion, he chooses to do what is right in his own eyes instead of what God has said to do. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and that is through Adam. And as a result, sin has spread to all of humanity and death through sin. It's interesting, Satan's tactics have not changed, folks. His tactics have not changed. He does the same thing today. If you look at 1 John chapter 2, Verses 15 through 16, you're going to see this. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 16. John, in writing this, he kind of gives us the picture of Satan's tactics. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And in verse 16, he says this, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and we would say the world system. It's not the world as a created order that he's talking about here. He's talking about the sinful world system, which Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Wearsby puts it this way in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3 as Eve is looking at this fruit, we see the tragic operation of the lust of the flesh, good for food. Good for food. She's looking at this fruit and she's saying, oh, it looks good for food. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. It was pleasant to the eyes. Evidently, it must have been some kind of a beautiful fruit, which leaves apples out. I hate apples. (laughs) By the way, you, you know why we think it's an apple? Because the Latin Vulgate translated fruit as an apple and therefore everybody thinks it's an apple. We don't know what kind of fruit this was. Give me a break. It's not sitting around on the farms, you know. I mean, this was one-of-a-kind stuff. Apples. 
The lust of the eyes, pleasant of the eyes, and the pride of life, desirable to make one, what? Wise. To be like God. Sound familiar, folks? Is there anything new under the sun? Satan uses the same tactics. We struggle with the lust of the flesh. What our sinful flesh is desiring, is compelling, is attracted to. We struggle with the lust of the eyes. We struggle with the pride of life. All of those things, that's what Satan and this whole system is set up to do, to attract something that is in us to come out. And we've got to guard that. In Christ Jesus, praise the God, and in spite of the greatest tragedy, we have the triumph of grace. Because in Christ, in Christ, we die to self, and we learn to walk in his victory, because in him there is no sin in Christ. Well, what are the consequences because everybody here has been, is being, and will continue to be impacted by sin. In Genesis 3, verses 8 and following, we see lost fellowship. There's a broken relationship with the Lord and, and obviously with one another. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. They recognized that they were naked. They had, they had made for themselves fig leaves. They had covered themselves with the, the leaves that were available. And they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And folks, we've been doing the same thing ever since. Loss of fellowship, loss of trust, fear not in a respectful way, but fear in an inordinate way, a twisted way. I love the fact that the Lord came to them. Don't you? The Lord has come to them. You think the Lord knows what's going on here? Absolutely. The Lord's sovereign. He knows exactly what's happening. And he comes to them. In verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, God says to them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman... <laughs> whom you gave to be with me. Why are you all laughing? <laughs> she gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We have fear of God. We have this broken relationship with him. We have a broken relationship with one another. Adam immediately turns on Eve. Eve immediately tries to blame the serpent. Sin has caused us to fear God in a way that is not what God ever intended. We also see that we have an inordinate desire never to take responsibility for our actions. We always want to hide false, fake facades. How are you doing? I'm fine. And we're really not. We always have a desire to justify ourselves, to give a valid reason for why we didn't do what we know we're supposed to do. 
What are the consequences God imposes? To the serpent in verse 14, he says, Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Evidently, serpents used to be able to walk. And they must have been beautiful creatures. I don't know about you, but that's hard for me to picture, isn't it? Because I really loathe snakes. They're just, whatever, necessary. (laughs) And he says in verse 15, and we're going to get back to this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So the serpent is cursed to crawl in the dust. There's going to be enmity between the woman and the serpent, between her seed and the seed of Satan. To the woman, in verse 16, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you will bring forth children. And then he says, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So there's pain in childbirth. The idea of desire for your husband here is is not a sexual issue. Because in chapter 4, we understand this word desire has the idea of not sexual at all, but it has the idea of an inordinate desire to be something that you're not, or or for sin in the context of chapter 4, to take over in a way that it was never intended to be used, right? Desire for your husband. In other words, your desire as a woman, as a wife, is going to be to usurp your husband's role. And he will dominate you. He will rule over you. Folks, that's tragic. Eve, who was created from the side of Adam, now to be put down. Adam, who had a companion to put his arm around, now to put down sad. Verse 17, Adam, to Adam he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you, you didn't do what you're supposed to do. You didn't fulfill the role of headship. You listened to the voice of your wife. You chose to do something contrary to what I said, to what God has said. You've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The ground is cursed. Creation is cursed because of Adam's decision. Things are out of place. The role. The rulership has been usurped because of sin. Hard work now replaces the role in eating given to Adam as a ruler. The ground is going to produce thistles and thorns, and it's going to be difficult to make a living, to grow food. Creation itself has been placed under this curse. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and following I won't read the whole passage. Take some time and go and read this. 
Verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Wow, devastating. All that God had intended, all that he pronounced as very good, because of sin, marred, scarred, no longer good. In verse 20, we have the idea of paradise lost. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, which means living one or mother of all that's living, because she was the mother of all the living. That's why the word Eve. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Catch that. That's important. He rejects the fig leaves. He makes garments out of skin, which means he had to do what? He had to kill something in order to shed its blood to cover them. That's a picture, folks, all through Scripture of the idea of salvation. Something had to die in order for sin to be atoned for, for there to be restitution, to be made right with God. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. The tree of life is in the garden. And the Lord, in his grace and infinite mercy, knows that if they eat of the tree of life, they will now be a sinful state forever. And so he kicks them out of the garden. Verse 24, he drives the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim. Those aren't the fat little guys strumming on the harps, sitting on the clouds. These guys are awesome, terrible. Satan himself, Lucifer, was considered a cherubim. They are the guardians of the holiness of God, and he places them at this eastern gate to the garden with a flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. They are kicked out of Eden. They're not allowed back in for their own good, for the good of ultimately humanity. Romans 3.23, David spoke to this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christ in you, the hope, the assurance of glory. Love it. We have tragedy, we have triumph. The tragedy of sin, the triumph of God's grace. That even though we were sinners, Christ did what? Died for us. Ephesians 2, and if you take time, read through verses 1 through 3. Let me give you a synopsis of some of the impact of sin, and yet some of in Christ moments where that which used to be because of sin is now changed because of Christ Jesus. We were dead in our sins, Ephesians 2, 1. Now what are we? We're alive in Christ. We were under the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, 2. Now who's our Lord? Jesus himself. We were children of wrath in Ephesians 2, 3. We were under the wrath of God. Now we're beloved. We're children of God. We're forgiven. We're restored. We're of the family of God. We used to live in the lusts of the flesh and the mind, Ephesians 2, 3. Now we have the mind of Christ 
and we're able to walk with the Lord and learn from him and our minds are able to be renewed through the word of God. We used to be engaged in evil deeds. Colossians 1.21 speaks to this. Now we've been created for good deeds. And when Christ comes to live within us, he begins to lead us in those deeds that he has planned for us before the foundation of the earth. And he empowers us to walk in them, to accomplish them as we yield to him. Ephesians 2.12, we were without hope. Without hope. But now, in Christ Jesus, we have hope. Did this catch the Lord by surprise? This fall, this sin, this marring of his creation? No. We know that he was slain before the foundation of the world. We know that the lamb or the blood of Christ, we know through the foreknowledge of God that he knew exactly what was going to happen. He allowed it because he wanted people, creatures that he had made to make a decision to follow him, to believe in him. I want to go back to Genesis 3.15 because it's profound. There's an immediate pronouncement of the gospel and declaration of victory. Immediate. When he begins to talk to the serpent and he tells the serpent that you are going to be cursed, you're going to crawl in the dust, there's going to be enmity, strife between the seed of the woman and your seed. We immediately have the hope of the gospel declared at the very onset of all of this. He makes this statement, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, what's he talking about? Warren Wiersbe puts it this way. This is the first gospel declared in the Bible, the good news that the woman's seed, Christ, would ultimately defeat Satan and his seed. Satan would bruise Christ in effect on the heel, but it wasn't a mortal blow. Whereas Christ would crush Satan's head, indicating his eternal destruction. In Revelation 13, 8, it says this, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Did this catch the Lord by any surprise at all whatsoever? Absolutely not. He already had a plan in place. He knew that he would go to the cross in order to provide salvation for fallen humanity for the sake of restoration, reconciliation, newness of life. In Romans 5, chapter 15, we have such a beautiful picture, and I wish I had about 100 hours to walk through Romans chapter 5. He says, the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one... Adam, the many died, all of us. Much more, superabundantly, did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Wow. <laughs> grace is superabundant. Grace is super victorious. And even though through one man sin entered into this world and death through sin and death spread to all men, tragedy. We know that through the death of one man, Jesus Christ, victory, grace has afforded to all mankind the opportunity to be saved, the opportunity to live. 
to be restored in a right fellowship, a right relationship with God himself. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.